Almighty God, you created all things and made them very good. You are our God of order. You sustain, care, and provide for your creation by your mighty right hand. Every blade of grass and every color declares your glory and honor and praise. You reign as King of kings and Lord of lords. You are absolutely sovereign over all creation. We confess this morning, Lord, that our eyes often deceive us. We're unable to see everything in subjection to your rule and reign when we look into our lives and into our world. We see the chaos of wars and suffering. We consider the constant battle to order our own lives, and we seemingly have endless interruptions and roadblocks in our own agendas. And we assume that because these things frustrate us, that your plans can somehow be frustrated or thwarted as well. Lord, what is man that you're mindful of us? What causes you to care for us so personally? You have granted us your mercy anew and afresh this morning. You constantly remember us and visit with us. And this morning, Lord, we ask for you to remember us and visit with us that we may receive your preached word by the power of the Spirit so that faith may sprout up where frustration has been predominant this week. Cause confident hope to appear where anxiety and worry has taken root this week. May abiding Christ-like love flower where criticism has grown this week. We ask you to do these things in us, Lord, by the power of your Spirit, for we are unable to do them for ourselves. You are indeed the God who reigns, and you are the God who reigns over our hearts. And so grant your grace this morning that it may triumph in our hearts and that we may be shaped to be into Christ-likeness for your glory and for our good. It is in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, let us uh, look this morning in Hebrews chapter 2. We're going to be looking specifically at verses 5 through 9 this morning. Verses 5 through 9. And I want us to, uh, to, we haven't been in Hebrews for the last couple of weeks, so I want us to kind of uh, hit, hit the ground running and, and kind of catch up to, to where we're at here. I want us to consider what we've looked at so far up to this point in chapters 1 and 2. First, I want us to consider that in the book of Hebrews, as we began uh, several weeks ago, we looked at chapter 1 and we looked at it specifically and noticed that chapter 1 speaks of the fact that Jesus Christ is in fact superior to the angels. We find in verse 3 where it says that Christ is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. He is, the, he is to uphold, or he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become, and this is verse 4, having become much superior to angels as the name that he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. And so we see here in chapter 1 of Hebrews, the author of Hebrews was seeking to establish the fact that Jesus was more superior than the angels. 
And so that truth has been laid, and he quotes a lot of Old Testament passages, as you notice there in chapter 1, throughout that to establish the fact that Jesus is more, uh, more important, more superior than the angels. Well, that's all fine and good as long as abstract truth remains abstract truth. But then this author, as I've mentioned before in the book of Hebrews, this is actually a sermon that was preached. And so this pastor, he wasn't willing to just simply portray the truth and then let it lie. But instead, what he said is, if in fact Jesus Christ is more superior than the angels, then that necessitates an activity. That necessitates a command. And so, the preacher here goes into chapter 2 with a charge to these people that he's preaching to. He says, because Jesus Christ is more superior than the angels, therefore, chapter 2, verse 1, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. Lest we, here's the phrase, drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression and disobedience received just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? And so you see here what he's doing is he established this truth, and that was all fine and good to the listeners, until all of a sudden the preacher says, now this is how you need to apply it. You need to pay much closer attention lest you drift away, because if you do drift away, there is sure transgression and disobedience. There will receive a retribution for that. So do not not, uh, slip away so that you neglect this great salvation. Well, now the charge is on their hearts, and they're wondering, wait a minute, Um, if if this is true, I I, I need to act differently. I need to do differently. And their hearts are just like our hearts. At that point, they want to test this truth. If I've got to do something because of the truth of God's Word, then I want to make sure that it is is true on several points because it's okay for me to just kind of, you know, Jesus is is more superior than angels. That's fine. That truth is, is great as long as it's at arm's length. But as soon as my preacher starts telling me that my life needs to change because of it, I want to push on that a little bit and make sure that this is in fact true. And what we find is that the preacher uh, sees that these people, specifically these Jewish, these new Jewish Christians, were starting to push back. Is in fact Jesus more uh, valuable or more superior than the angels? How in fact can he be? And this is what their case is in verses 5 through 9. How can Jesus be more superior than angels if indeed he is in fact fully human? If Christ is fully human, then how can he be greater than the angels? How can he be superior to the angels? Because these Jewish Christians knew their Old Testament and they knew specifically verse, uh, uh, Psalm chapter 8 that Ken read for us this morning during the call to worship that states that the Lord has made him, meaning humanity, a little lower than the angels. So how can Christ, who is fully human and fully God, he, we may, he makes that case in chapter 1, but if you're making the case, and, and the author of Hebrews does, that Jesus is fully human, how then can he be superior to the angels? And how then are we to understand this? And so the preacher here brings up this objection that he supposes is in the mind of the audience of his congregation, and he says, verse 5, For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? And so he goes into, he jumps right into the middle of this chapter 8 of Psalm 8. He jumps right in the middle. He's not beginning with Psalm 8. He's right in the middle. And he is quoting the middle portion of this psalm because he knows this is the portion that obviously is coming to their mind as they've been challenged with the supremacy of Christ. 
And what he wants to do is he wants to answer this question and he wants to show these people two things. And these are the two points for us this morning. Two things. First, the Hebrew author wants to show the authority of humanity. The authority of humanity. Verses 5 through 8. The very beginning of verse 8, actually. And then the second thing he wants to show them is the supremacy of Christ. And this is in the remainder of verse 8 through verse 9. 8 and 9. The authority of humanity and the supremacy of Christ. The authority of humanity and the supremacy of Christ. So let us look first at this this authority of humanity and let us notice first and foremost the aim of this authority. The aim of this authority. Verse 5 says, Now it was not to angels that God subjected the world. Notice this, the world to come. Do you see that in your passage? The world to come. So what is being spoken of here is not the present world, but the world that is to come, the world that is to be ushered in, what we understand as the kingdom of God. He says, it was not to angels that God subjected to this world that is to come, this world that, is, that has been inaugurated by Jesus Christ, this, this world where Jesus Christ is reigning and ruling in every way. It was not subjected to angels. Now, why, was, why would it be that these, uh, these people would think that the angels were, had authority, had more authority than even humanity, to the point that they were able to reign and control this world to be? Well, we know that even Paul speaks of the powers and principalities and the uh, darkness and, and the fact that there is, in fact, one angel who is the prince of darkness who is, in fact, roaming on this earth, doing what he will, and that is Satan. He is, in fact, an angel. But we also notice that, in particular in this passage, what we find is that these people were understanding angels as having great power. And we know that in the Old Testament, angels did have great power. In fact, they had greater power than even humans do. Their strength is great. So let me, let me help you understand here just for a moment a little bit of, let's do an excursus of what we understand about angels. Angels are created beings. We know that from Scripture. They're also spiritual and moral beings. They have very incredible intelligence, but they do not have physical bodies. That's what we understand about angels. Now, we do know that they are more powerful than humanity because 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 11 says that angels, though greater in might and power, they do not pronounce blasphemous judgments against false prophets that were being spoken of in 2 Peter. So we know there and in many other places where angels were able to do things that humans just simply could not do. And so they were understood to be pretty incredible beings, and rightly so. The next thing we understand about angels is that their residence isn't just here on earth. See, here, humans, we simply reside here on earth. But what we find about angels in the Old Testament and the New Testament is that the angels are able to come and go from the celestial world onto this earth. We find this most pronounced explicitly in, uh, in, in the Christmas story. In Luke chapter 2, we see, And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. Who's that? Right? Shepherds, right? This angel of the Lord appeared to them. And it says that, that he appeared to them and their glory of the Lord shone around them. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest. And so this one angel now all of a sudden became a host of angels and this a heavenly host. They're all, they're all praising God and these shepherds are watching this. And then after the, after the scene takes place, in verse 15 it says this. Many of you may have even overlooked it as I typically do. <clears throat> when the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened. You see what the angels are doing? They came, they declared Jesus as being Lord, and then they went away into heaven. They're coming and going. Their residence is different than the 
than humans. Humans are not able to do that. So this is probably why the, the, the audience of the book of Hebrews was thinking that these angels had incredible authority and that they would, in fact, rule not only in this world but the one to come. But what we find is that angels, though they have some things that are distinctly um, more significant than humans, there are some very important things that angels do not have. The first one is this, is that angels are never communicated as being image bearers of God. Only humanity is considered to be image bearers of God. Uh, uh, Mike read that for us this morning in Genesis chapter 1. That man is made in the image of God. Angels have, are never pronounced as being image bearers of God. And probably the most significant thing is this, and this is what I wanted to mention. There's a lot of other things. I'm just mentioning these in, in passing because I want us to understand here specifically in this passage where why is it that these people, the, the, the audience of the book of Hebrews, would think that the angels would have power and authority to be able to rule not only in this world but also the one to come. It's because they were very powerful beings. But they were not image bearers of God, which humanity is. And secondly, angels did not have and do not have the potential for redemption, which is amazing. When the angels fell, God left them that way. It says in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloom, gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment... You see, God was absolutely just and right when the angels sinned to send all of them to hell immediately and to judge them for their sinfulness. Now, some say, well, that was kind of harsh. Well, it was. And in fact, we need to understand that God could have very well, in rightly so, done that for us as well. God could have said everyone that's in humanity that sins could go to hell and God says, I'm not going to save any of them. And he would have been absolutely just and right in doing that. But he didn't. God instead decided to redeem humanity. And so we are distinct from angels in that way. We're not only image bearers of God, but we are those who have been redeemed. It says that angels long to look into the things that are here, happening here on earth because they're amazed to see how God is so kind and gracious to his people, humanity. These image bearers of God himself, they're looking into this, wondering with awe of how God's bringing all things together. It's amazing, these angels. We see here that the preacher, the author of Hebrews, is saying that these angels are not going to be those who are in charge in this world to come. In, in other words, it says here that they, it was not to angels that God subjected this world to come. This world to come. Understanding that this world is the same world that we understand when we pray in the Lord's Prayer. Your kingdom come, your will be done. It's an understanding of God and inhabiting the world and having a, a habitation in the world where he is reigning over it and all things are under the lordship of Jesus Christ. This is the world to come that's being spoken of. Now, what I want us to see here in verse 5 specifically is it says this world to come of which we are speaking. It's interesting that this preacher is not speaking of the world that they're living in right now. He's not speaking of it directly. But this preacher, throughout the book of Hebrews, is pointing his congregation to a world to come. To the world that God is making and establishing. Now, is that world happening today? Yes, and I want to make that point. We are not people who just look off into the distance and say, heaven will be here one day and we're going to look forward to that and that's the only thing we need to worry about. No, but in fact, God is establishing his kingdom. When we pray the prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, we're praying that God will do that today in our midst. And so here, this world that is to come 
is the world that this preacher is speaking to his people about. And he's saying God is establishing this kingdom, this world to come. And this kingdom that is coming, this kingdom that's being inaugurated, that's, that's happening in our midst right now amongst us because of Jesus Christ, this kingdom, this world is not going to be subjected to angels. Well, then, the question must be asked, who, in fact, are these? is this world going to be subjected to? Well, what we find is that the initial idea, the, the plan of God, is that this world to come be subjected to humanity, to God's image bearers, to God's people. We find this as we continue and move on. In verse 6, it says, It has been testified somewhere, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? Now, this is quoting Psalm 8. And you may ask, well, why in the world did he, the author of Hebrews, say in verse 6, it has been testified somewhere? <clears throat> why didn't he communicate? Why did, why did he seem so vague? Did he not know his Bible well? Well, uh, he didn't have, in this particular time, you had the book names like Psalms. And he knew the Psalms. But he didn't have chapter numbers and verse numbers like we do today. They didn't have those in that time. And so when they quoted passages, they quoted passages that they had memorized and they could jump in at any point. They knew their Bibles much better than we do and they, were not, they didn't have a particular passage, an address to go to. And so when they were quoting here, it's amazing, throughout the book of Hebrews, every time it's, almost every time that scripture is quoted, the author here says, uh, he doesn't mention the human author, but he says often that God is the one who authored the Old Testament. He says it throughout the book of Hebrews. It's amazing that even here in verse 6, he says, it has been somewhere testified, and it speaks of uh, Psalm 8 here, almost as if to say, you know what? David, which is the author of Psalm 8, was really insignificant. What's really important here is that God spoke these words. God said, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? God's the one that authored these words. And so here, verses 6, 7, and the first part of verse 8, is chapter 8 of Psalms, chapter 8 of Psalms, that's being quoted. It's being quoted for us here in our passage. And what I want us to see here is two things. Uh, first, I want us to see that it speaks of, a, or asks a question. What is man? What is humanity? What are we? And he goes on and he says that you are mindful of him. The phrase there literally means that you remember him. That you take thought of him. Well, today... We live in a society and a world that promotes and pushes and encourages self-esteem, self-love, self-status, self-worth. And honestly, that so often is communicated as a valuable thing in our society today. Friends, it is not. Self-valuing, self-worth, self-esteem will do nothing but make us wrecks. It'll make us depressed. It'll make us be people who are filled with doom and dread. And if you don't believe me, ask those who have been doctor, who have been who have been um, 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 uh, talked to about that. It's amazing. They think that if I can just get more self worth, more self esteem, more self love, then I can be a better person. And what they find is that they aren't. That they can see in their hearts. They can see, you know what, I'm not a very valuable, worth, worth, filled with worth kind of person. And you're thinking, Shane, this is, this is going in the wrong direction really fast. Do you know where our value is found, friends? It's not in what we think of ourselves. It's in what God thinks of us. You see, that's exactly what this passage says. What is man? 
that God thinks of us. Why are we valuable? It isn't because we have great and mighty thoughts about God. It's because God has thoughts of us. You see, our value is not in our own self-esteem, our own self-love, our own self-worth. Our value is in what God thinks of us. Now, that's amazing and very comforting because man's worth is not based on what we think, but in what God thinks of us. Now, this may be exactly what you need to hear this morning. Let me continue, and then I want to make an application real quickly. It speaks of here that God thinks of us in particular and unique ways. And what's so encouraging and comforting here, and I want you to hear this, God thinks of us in times of our greatest need. Now, if you think through Scripture, you think of what were times when people had a great need, when they felt like they were completely abandoned by God. Would you think of Noah sitting on that boat in the middle of nowhere, wondering when he's going to land? And it says in Genesis 8, 1, But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark, and God made a wind blow over the earth, and water subsided. And the loneliness of that ark, with all these other things, Noah was trying to be faithful, and he was wondering, is God forgotten me? And it says here that, and it's using the same word here as the word for mindful in our passage in, in, uh, in verse 6. This word for mindful is the same word that's used here in Genesis chapter 8, verse 1. But God remembered Noah, and he caused the wind to blow across the sea. We know that God also stepped into very personal circumstances for, listen ladies, for you ladies who are dealing with different things in your life, different issues in your life. You can know that God is a God who is mindful of you. You know why? Because God not only is is mindful of huge patriarchs like Noah who's on a boat, who's been faithful, who's built the ark and has all these animals with him. But you know who else God is mindful of in Scripture? Genesis chapter 30, verse 22. Then God remembered Rachel. And God listened to her because her womb was closed. You see what God's doing? God doesn't just remember or is mindful of those huge epic events in people's lives. God's mindful of us when we're sitting in a quiet room wondering if we're going to have children. God remembered Rachel. It says in Psalm 111.5, He provides food for those who fear Him. He remembers His covenant for them. Do you ever wonder, am I going to keep my job? Am I going to be able to provide for my family? Am I going to be able to care for, provide the needs that I need? God says, when we are as husbands seeking to be, provide for our family and care for them and give them food, you know what God says He's going to do? He says, I'm going to remember you. I'm going to be mindful of you. Psalm 98.3 says, He has remembered His steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. His steadfast love and faithfulness, He has remembered. He is mindful of His love for His people. So this is an amazing truth. That God, what is man? What are you and I? Well, we don't find our value and our worth in what we think of God. That's not where our value and worth is found. It's found in what God thinks of us. And so, this is encouraging. Let me step to the next, next thing here. Not only does it say, what is man that you are mindful of him, or it says, or the son of man that you care for him. That you care for him. So man's worth is not only not based on what he thinks of God, but what on God thinks of him. But you know what? Your worth is not based on what you do for God. 
but what God has done for you. You see, here it says that what is man or the son of man that, that you care for him, that God cares for him. This word is actually the word um, episcope, which is the word for episcopal. It's the word for the leaders in a church. It's the word that's translated in our Bibles as overseer or elder. And the idea here is that God is caring for, he's visiting, that's the way it's translated sometimes in the Old Testament, he visits his people with the purpose and the intent of caring for them, providing for them, and then punishing those who seek to do harm for them. It's like a shepherd who is with his sheep. It says in Genesis 21.1, The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. He visited her, for the purpose of doing to her what he had promised he would do for her. It says in Jeremiah, remember Jeremiah is the weeping prophet? He was the one that was basically beat up by everybody, you know, the outsiders and the insiders. And nobody liked Jeremiah. He was the guy who was constantly saying what needed to be said, and yet nobody liked him because of it. He was thrown in the pit. He was drug off out of the country. All these bad things are happening. And he cries out in, in Jeremiah chapter 15, verse 15, O oh Lord, you know, remember me and visit me. Isn't that a great prayer? Remember me and visit me and take vengeance for me on my persecutors. In your forbearance, take me not away. Know, know that for your sake I bear reproach. Jeremiah's crying out to God, saying, Would you visit me, Lord? Will you come and care for me? Will you, will you get rid of and remove the things that are trying to oppose me and be against me? The same word is in 1 Peter 5, 2. And when it says... Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising, and here's the word, oversight or care or visitation, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you not have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Now, this if, if, if you may be here this morning to hear this truth and this truth alone, and we've got another one that's coming. But I want you to hear this. Your value and worth. It's not based on what you think about God and what you can do for God. It's based on what God thinks of you and what God has done for you. And so the, the, the command that I'm giving you this morning is to stop. You don't have to perform. Your worth is not based on what you're doing and what you think and how spiritual-minded you are. Your worth and value is based on what God has for you in Christ. It says, what is man? What is shame? What are you that God is mindful of you? And that God has cared for you? What is... There's, that's infallible for us to think about. And yet, when God visits us, He remembers us and He visits us and He cares for us, that's where our value is. And so when we're depressed and struggling and wondering whether there's any value in us at all, or others are saying, you know what, you haven't performed for me, you haven't done this for me, you haven't done that for me, you're not, you're not valuable because you're not performing, and so therefore we begin believing that in our own hearts. We can say, wait a minute, that's how the world values others, is what they can do for me. But God values us based on what he thinks of us. And in Christ, we are remembered and we are visited. You see, our world is... Consumed with self-esteem, peer pressure, codependence, self-image, and the incessant need for the approval of others. Maybe you don't deal with that. I do, right? 
we have become professional in our narcissism and our self-love. Just the fact that I'm able to find that many vocabulary words for this issue in the English language lets us know that we've tried to redefine it every way under the sun. How do we break out of this and begin observing ourselves rightly? Let me ask you a more pointed question. If we are this way, how do we worship God? Because worship all of a sudden becomes what God can do for me. How I feel about the worship service. What I think about what's going on here. Instead of receiving from God what he has done for me. In other words, the value of this worship service is based on what happens to me. You see how narcissistic and self-loving that is? It's not about what God has done for you. How do we worship God? Well, we begin by finding our value and reevaluating our lives according to what Scripture says about us. We're image bearers of God. And in Christ, we've been reconciled to the degree that we see here that God is mindful of us and that he cares for us. He's mindful of us and he cares for us. The only way to break out of this self-love is to begin reevaluating ourselves according to Scripture. We are not valuable because of our thoughts of ourselves or anybody else. We are not valuable because of what we can do or not do for God. Instead, what is man? What are you and I? We are mindful in God's mind, and we are cared for by our God. It goes on in verse 7, and it says, Though this high and exalted authority has been given to humanity, we have been made, it says here, you made him, meaning humanity, for a little while lower than the angels. Lower than the angels. And notice this key phrase, for a little while, because that's going to pop up again. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, this is amazing because this latter part of this verse is where the Hebrew author then takes off. What we find is that the rest of verse 8 and the rest of chapter 9 is him explaining that latter part of verse 7 and 8. He made him, you made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. And now the author of Hebrews says, let me explain to you what that means and why this seems so difficult for you to grasp. That Jesus Christ is in fact human and that doesn't mean that he is no longer superior to angels. But in fact, this very humanity, this humility that Christ went through is the basis for his supremacy. That's what he's doing in our second point, which is the supremacy of Christ. The supremacy of Christ. And it is the latter part of verse 8. Can you uh, turn the air on just a bit, Phil? First thing I want us to see is this, this authority of Christ, the supremacy of Christ being questioned. It says here in verse 8, the, latter part, the second part, Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. God left nothing outside of the control of humanity. Okay. Now you're starting to think, wait a minute. This is sounding a lot like he's speaking of Jesus, right? Because he's speaking of his control, him, to subject it to him. Uh, at present, we do not see everything in subjection to him. Well, that's exactly the point of the Hebrew author. He's wanting us to say, which one is it? Is it humanity that God's speaking of here, or is it Christ? And the answer is, well, yes. That's exactly what he's speaking of. He's bringing these two together and saying that in Christ, 
We see all things have been subjected to man. But what we see here in verse 8 is, Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. Some translations actually translate that second part of that as, He left nothing that is not subject to him. Or, God left nothing that is not subject to them. You see the double negative there for emphasis? In other words, he's saying, There's nothing in all of creation that's not subject to humanity. That's what is being said here. Now, putting everything in subjection to him. Well, when did that happen? Well, it happened in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, and God blessed them, humanity, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Now, listen to this. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over all the living things that move on the earth. This is God giving dominion over over all all of creation to humanity, to man, Adam and Eve. Well, the question then is, well, what happened? Well, chapter 3 happened of Genesis. Sin entered into the world. Humanity is no longer uh, uh, the one who is having dominion. But in fact, all of creation is fighting against this humanity that is trying to bring it under control. We find here that it says, it says, in fact, the, the, the audience of this Hebrew uh, preacher here says, now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. But listen, what it says in verse 8, the very last sentence, at present, we do not see everything in subjection to them or to him. In other words, they're saying, wait a minute, you say everything is subjection to Christ or to humanity. That's just not true. There's nothing that we see that seems to be in subjection to the things of God. If we read the newspaper. Or look at the evening news. Or go online and look at the news from there. We can say with this audience, we do not see everything in subjection under the Lordship of Christ. And we definitely do not see everything in subjection under the uh, submitted to humanity in this way. So they are questioning this authority. They're saying, really? Is everything in subjection under humanity? Because right now we do not see everything under subjection to humanity. But notice what it says. This authority is being questioned, supremacy of Christ. But then it turns in verse 10 and it says, excuse me, verse 9, but we do see this. We see him who, and here's our phrase, for a little while was made lower than the angels. And then what's the next phrase say? Namely, Jesus. And so what is he doing? He's saying, Jesus came in his incarnation, humiliated himself, made himself low, came and dwelt among us as as a human, completely and fully human and fully God, and he made himself for a little while a little lower than the angels. And he did that. Yes, he's a little bit lower than the angels, but he did that for a reason, so that he may be crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Now I want you to see this. Look back at verse 7. You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor. Speaking of humanity. Then in verse 9 he says the exact same thing but he attributes it to Jesus. And he says we see Jesus now. Though we don't see the world being in subjection to humanity we see Jesus now. We see him for a little while. He was made lower than the angels. Speaking of his incarnation. And then it goes on, it says, this Jesus was crowned in glory and honor. This is his exaltation because of the suffering of death. 
so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. So what he's saying is that this kingdom to come, this world to come that's being spoken of in verse 5, has been inaugurated by this one who has come, who's a little lower than angels, Jesus Christ, who came, dwelt on earth, lived and died a sinless death, is now crowned and exalted, according to Hebrews chapter 1, and sitting on the right hand of God the Father right now, reigning and ruling. Now, do we see that? Not completely, not fully. But God is right now, even this week, even this day, bringing everything under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And we have to look to Jesus. When we look around in our world, we don't see it. When we look to Christ and where he is, exalted at the right hand of the Father, we can only see it then. We can only see it then. So here's the question. Let me back up for just a minute and and, and help you understand what's going on here. These Jewish Christians who had just become, come to Christ, have been born again, they're, they're in this new odd kind of faith. They, were, they grew up with the temple and with the sacrifices and with all these other things. And now their preacher, their pastor is saying, you don't need those things anymore because Christ is sufficient. Christ is enough. And they're like, okay, that, that doesn't seem quite right. But if Christ is fulfilling that, Christ is greater than all the angels. That's okay. But then what we find is that these Jewish Christians, as we look later in the book of Hebrews, they were being persecuted. They were struggling. They were losing their jobs because of their faith. They were, their, their, their families were being placed in harm's way. And they're asking the question, is Jesus still worth it? In other words, they were, the, the, the author here was concerned that they were not paying enough Tension to the things of God. Verse, chapter 2, verse 1, that they would be drifting away. Chapter 3, verse 12, he was concerned that they were not taking care, lest there be any of you in an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. He was concerned that they were going to fall away from this faith that, that was new and that was fresh in their minds. Were they going to continue to hold on to Christ even when it was difficult? And what they're saying, what he's saying here in this passage, in our passage, is that God is inaugurating and initiating a kingdom to come. Now, you don't see it clearly now, but he's doing it. Day in and day out, slowly but surely, God is doing it. And the only way we can be sure of that is not to look at the things around us in this world. It says here that we look around us and we do not see everything in subjection to him, to Christ. Only when we look to Christ do we see that he is doing this in our midst. So that it says in 1 Corinthians 15... For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Listen, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. This is God establishing his kingdom on earth through Christ. Verse 26 of 1 Corinthians 15. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. And so that's exactly what's being said here in our passage in verse 9. That he was crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. So that by the grace of God he might taste death or experience death. Or take in and swallow death for everyone who believes in him. Now, let me close with simply kind of hitting pay dirt for us here. You may think, well, that's all fine and good, but how does that matter? Why does that matter? Well, let me, let me hopefully explain it to you in a couple of ways. 
you are working in your company. And you're standing around either the truck outside with the blueprints or in the office with the conference table. And you're looking around at the different people in that room that would like nothing more than to hang it around your neck. To do you in, if need be, so that they can climb the corporate ladder. And that they can have more status, more prestige. And they know that you are a believer. And that in the past, you've been a person of integrity. And so they want to use that integrity against you so that they can, they can uh, uh, basically promote themselves. Let me bring it together here. You're sitting in that situation. The first truth I want you to remember as you think about that is that God is bringing in his kingdom. He's ushering his kingdom in. He's doing that. Now, that doesn't feel like it's happening right then, does it? When you're sitting in that office or standing around that, that truck with the blueprints on the, on the hood and you know these people are after you and all they want is money and all you want to do is be faithful, it doesn't feel that, does it? That's when you say, what is man that you're mindful of me right now, Lord? What is the son of man that you care for me? You see what you're doing? You're saying, Lord, I have no value standing in this room or, or sitting in this room with these people. I have no value apart from the value that you give to me. You have remembered me. You have visited me. Lord, and I want to acknowledge that you are present here. And then I want you to move down in your text here and say, not only is I'm, am I going to acknowledge sitting in this office that God is mindful of me and that he's going to visit me and he's going to care for me and he's going to provide for me like he did Jeremiah, like he did Noah, like he did all these other saints, Sarah and Rebecca. But I know that though I can't see it, all things are coming in the subjection under the Lordship of Jesus Christ right now. And I'm going to trust that through the fact that Though Jesus has been, was made little lower than angels, that he is currently crowned with glory and honor, and that because of his death, I don't have to worry about feeding my family or caring for my, my loved ones because I know, Lord, that you are making all things come together for good. You're bringing everything under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Let me make another illustration. You're sitting in that classroom, and you're teaching your students, right? Miss, Miss Jenny and Scott. I would dare say that looking out over that body of students each day, you don't see Jesus Christ being ushered into the kingdom of God at that point. If anything, you see chaos, right? At that time when you're sitting in your desk in your office, you can say, what am I that the Lord is mindful of me? Who am I that the Lord would care for me? And though I can't see it in my classroom, I know that the Lord is bringing everything under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And that by my teaching these children, these students, I am ushering in, I'm pushing back the kingdom of darkness and I'm pushing in the kingdom of God in my way that God has called me to do, in my vocation, doing my thing. Last illustration. When you're in your house, moms, trying to love your children well and get school done and errands done and stuff done and things done and then, and then somebody knocks at the door and there's ducks in the front yard. Right? What's amazing is that Miss Donna, though she didn't have this passage, 
what she testified to the fact was is that she said to herself at the end of that, what am I that you were mindful of me, Lord? Why, Lord, did you visit me today through this incredibly odd scenario? And yet, Lord, you did. And so though I don't understand how all this world is working, I don't have to. The Lord is ordering and orchestrating all of heaven and earth to bring everything under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And you know what? You know what your responsibility is, Mom? Love your husband well. Love your children well. Be faithful to the calling that God has given to you. And know that by so doing, you're bringing in the kingdom of God. You're bringing everything under the Lordship of Jesus Christ by speaking truth into that situation and trusting that though it's not in your power, it's in God's power to do this through your vocation. Because, friends, there will be a day. If you will, turn with me to Revelation chapter 21. And I'll close with this. Because it is an appropriate way to close. Whether you're a businessman sitting around a conference table or a teacher in a classroom or a mom in your home, one day the kingdom will come and the world that is will pass away. Revelation 21 will happen. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, with humanity. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. See, friends, that's the world to come. That's what God is doing through each and every one of you as you're trying to be faithful in your particular areas of your life, seeking to be faithful, to be mindful that God is there and that God is visiting you and that God remembers you and that God is with you and to be faithful in those situations, speaking truth into the hearts and lives of people that are around you, whether it's at the office or in the classroom or in the home. Verse 4 of chapter 21. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things they have passed away and he who was seated on the throne said behold I am making all things new I'm making all things new I want us to know that as we as God's people seek to be faithful in the areas that God has called us to. We can know that God has given us as image bearers of Him. He is mindful of us. He is seeking to visit us in Christ. And we can, though we can't see it with our physical eyes, we look to Jesus and we know that one day this is going to be what happens. And so if you're, if you're living your life for your own kingdom, it's going to be thwarted. Give it up. It's not, it's not going to last. As it says in Hebrews, everything is going to be shaken and only that which is, will remain is going to be what God has established and this is what God is establishing. Be faithful to know that God is with you, that He is working in your life 
and trust that he's bringing everything under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Four, it was not to angels that God subjected this world to come, but to his people when he would dwell with them. Let us pray.